Okay, so we've been allowed by The Athletic to plug a local business local to us that is still keeping on going in these difficult times for small businesses. And I've picked M. Manzies, the eel and pie house who deliver pie, mash and jelly deals throughout the southeast London area. You can find them on Deliveroo, on Facebook, on Twitter. They're over a century old. We want to keep them in business for as long as possible. So if you're in southeast London and you want to get some pie and mash delivered, go to manzi.co.uk or find them on Twitter, Instagram and Deliveroo. We want some pie now. Welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Well, we're into week two of the coronavirus-enforced lockdown here in the UK, so once again we're convening remotely to have our weekly Chelsea chat. On today's show, we get up to date with what's happening at Cobham, brackets not much, close brackets, and in players' gardens, brackets exercise, close brackets. As well as that, we'll continue our look back at the 1998-99 season as part of the Athletics' rebooted series. We'll answer your questions and reveal our latest cult hero. That's all coming up in this edition of Straight Out of Cobham. Welcome into our Chelsea chat room, one and all. Remember chat rooms? They were a thing back in the old days, like school and socialising. Right, who's in with me? Matt Davis-Adams today then. Well, Simon Johnson is on holiday. I hear his kitchen's lovely this time of year. So it's the dynamic <laughs> duo on the line to join me. Are you there, Liam Toomey? I am very much so. I'm not going anywhere. And hello and good day to Dominic Fifield. Hello, and I'm not going anywhere near Simon Johnson's kitchen. <laughs> uh, right, on with the latest news. Uh, news might be a rather grandiose term. So Liam, last week you and Simon penned a joint piece about what's actually happening with the Chelsea squad just now. Uh, We know they're not training together, they are still keeping fit though. I was particularly cheered to hear there'd been a shipment of skipping ropes sent out to the squad. Are they being put to good use? All the essentials, you know, skipping ropes, bikes, uh, some fruit and veg. You know, they're they're, they're looking after them. I think Ruben off the chic posted a video of him using said skipping rope and he exhibited a level of coordination that I've never been able to master while skipping. Um, I thought you were going to talk about that... his, uh, his dancing with his sister there. That was, that was more <laughs> impressive than the skipping, I thought. No, that's a separate podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I've just always had an admira- admiration for anyone who can skip competently because it's one of the human skills that I've never mastered. All right, well, when we get back into the studio, I'll, I'll teach you how to do it because I'm actually quite a proficient skipper. Uh, now that is the light at the end of the tunnel that we've all been waiting for, Matt. I'm starting to question my life here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know how when they show professional boxers warming up for for fights, yeah. that's what um, that's the level of aptitude that Loftus Cheek had. I'm, I'm sure neither of you envisioned the podcast starting this way, so I'll move on. <laughs> um, but I was just going to say, so the players have been given uh, daily programs, daily fitness programs to kind of mimic the, the seasonal load as much as possible um, at, during this unforeseen hiatus. And it consists of a morning session, an afternoon session. They'll do some pretty intense stuff on the bikes that will be monitored online by, by Chelsea staff. Uh, and there are running exercises for them to do if they've got gardens. Uh, for most of the players, they will have big gardens if they live near Cobham. Um, or they can run around big open spaces in leafy Surrey. For the ones who live in London, it's maybe a little bit more 
awkward, but they've been just told to find isolated public green spaces if they want to go for a run. Um, and it's just geared around trying to, to, to maintain some sort of fitness routine um, because no one entirely knows when, when football is going to resume, but Chelsea have to make sure that they are their players are going to be physically ready um, so that they're not starting from absolute scratch. Dom, this is this is pretty typical, it seems, certainly amongst Premier League clubs, to kind of send out a training plan and, and send out the exercise bikes, etc. It's got to be pretty frustrating for for management and I guess for the fitness staff too to know that this is this is not what they anticipated happening at this point of the season. And, and if and when football resumes again, we're likely to see players picking up injuries because they're not at the level of fitness we thought they were and then you get the kind of criticism that that Chelsea's fitness staff have suffered in recent weeks and months for something which is essentially out of their control. Yeah, you're you're right. I imagine that when we do come back, whenever that is, uh, they'll have to do some kind of mini pre-season almost to bring them back up to speed to, for as close as they can be to, to match fitness um, because they can work on the bikes and, and, and do their, their jogs and all of that, all that data can be collected by Chelsea's staff and Premier League club staff, which, which is, look, that's an advance um, from, from previous years and, and it does give them a chance to monitor what's going on, but, but they will be losing that match sharpness with every passing day. Um, they were in a rhythm of the season when when the campaign was brought to this hiatus um, and it will take them a while to get back to that. So, you know, what, what, whatever arrangement the various leagues come up with uh, in an attempt to complete this season, yeah, it's, it's not going to be like watching them play full throttle football initially and, you know, any player that comes in and attempts to do that will will run the risk of of the muscle injuries that yeah that have afflicted this squad over the course of the season when you know when players have been fatigued because they won't be up to up to speed when when the season resumes speaking of injured players Liam as you point out in the piece particularly frustrating for for three of the Chelsea squad who are just about ready and waiting to return in in Hudson Odoi Pulisic and and Loftus Cheek this really came at the worst possible time for them yeah, absolutely, and I think the one you probably feel most sorry for is is Loftus Cheek. It, it it feels like the the world is kind of conspiring against him to to keep him off a football pitch. First with the Achilles, and and then with all the setbacks he had in his long recovery from that, and and now this totally unforeseen global event. Um, and Christian Pulisic, from what I was told, had literally just rejoined uh, first team training, full training from that really horrible adductor injury that had kept him out for a lot longer than most people anticipated uh, when Cobham was was effectively shut down to the first team squad. So um, he he's now waiting. Hudson-Odoi, of course, had been sidelined by that hamstring injury and then tested positive for coronavirus. He's now posting videos of him running outside. You know, he's not troubled by that hamstring anymore. He's he's fully recovered from, from the virus. He's in very good physical condition. So I think the frustration... Is, will be felt throughout the squad and, and of course throughout football at this time um, but particularly with those those three players I think it's quite uh, quite galling personally for for the fact that they've ha- they've already had to do more than their fair share of sitting and watching I mean there there is an, an argument you can make that you know and this is all within the prism of the fact that these are these are trivial concerns in 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 the context of what the world is dealing with with this virus but um if and when football does finally resume, you know, Chelsea, along with 
some of the other clubs that have been badly hit by injuries in the last couple of months can can maybe look forward to to going into the resumption with pretty much a clean bill of health. That that is one positive, but it, it's one of very few positives of this situation for Chelsea. Is there a, an argument that, in some ways, this might have actually done? I know this, is, this sounds perverse, almost, but it, it at least has prevented the sort of rush of uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek back into that first team. I mean, I, I, I was always there was a lot of. I'm sure the, the club would have dealt with it very sensibly, but there was a lot of a lot of calls from the outside for him to get back in. You know, is he going to be fit for this weekend? Is he going to be playing this weekend? Well, when he when football does come back now. All being well, um, he will he will be he will be ready then, and probably as ready as all his teammates. He might even be fresher than than quite a lot of them. Which and the other thing to bear in mind with Ruben as well is it you know he he wasn't going to get into that Euro twenty twenty squad on the back of hardly playing any football for a year. Now he might get into the Euro twenty twenty one squad all being well as well in the future, which hopefully will, will offer him another incentive to to impress next season. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the pressure to put him back into the team was was all external. You've had Lampard talking about him every time Lampard has spoken about Loftus-Cheek in public. He's he's he stressed the need for caution. He's he's continually said, you know, he's short physically. I mean, he's not short physically, but he is short in terms of fitness. Um and and that they would need to build him up with development squad minutes and 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 working with him on the training ground to to make sure that he was ready. I mean, I was surprised to see him on the bench for that Tottenham game, but I don't think there was ever really a conversation of him um, coming on. And ever since, it, it's been back to caution the guiding philosophy with him. And uh, and he will be he he will be in a much better position, I think, to to contribute to Chelsea if and when football resumes. But it's I think it's just the uncertainty that is causing um, everyone this problem at the moment it's not just that that there is no football it's just it's that none of these guys know when the football is coming back well we hope it's before too long but it doesn't look as though it's going to be anytime soon to be frank okay next we're going to continue to look back at the 1998-99 season as part of the athletics rebooted series and it was a significant campaign for one of the blues greatest ever players Right, come back with me, listener, to October the 28th, 1998. Fatboy Slim was gangster tripping his way to the top of the charts. The impeachment trial of Bill Clinton had begun in earnest. A 10-year-old Liam Toomey was being beguiled by Gianfranco Zola. And four minutes before the end of a 4-1 League Cup win against Aston Villa at Stamford Bridge, John Terry replaced Dan Petrescu to make his Chelsea debut. Uh, Dom, as I'm sure we all have done, I looked at the uh, the soccer base page for, for this game and, and looked at the team and noted that Neil Clement and John Harley also came on when Terry made his debut. This was quite a successful time for the youth system at Chelsea, wasn't it? Just before the the sort of glut of, of big-name foreign players came in and, and maybe blocked the pathway a little. Yeah, and Jody Morris started that match as well, I think. Um, Mark Nichols as well. It was... It, Look, it was a, it was a second team effectively that played Villa that night, and it, the manager even picked himself when uh, he's Gianluca Vialli <laughs> scored a hat trick. Um, there were a couple of things that, that struck me. I mean, obviously, when you see the footage just before the, the camera fixes upon the the youthful John Terry striding to his position at right back, 
there's Dan Petrescu throwing a tantrum in the tunnel um, and storming off uh, off the bench. Um, and this is a player that's obviously been subbed four minutes from the end of the game. And, but apparently it was born of of some clashes between Petrescu and Terry in training, one of which necessitated Dennis Wise getting in between and, and, and forcing Petrescu off Terry with his hands around his throat, apparently. Um, not a lot of love lost between the two of them. Um, apparently John Terry was, even at that age, was quite keen to, to throw his weight around in training and, and, and Dan Petrescu seemed to be the player that he singled out for particular punishment. Um, but I, I quite like the idea that... that uh, that Terry comes on and immediately players are throwing straps around him. The, the other thing that <laughs> that happened immediately after Terry coming on was Dennis Wise going two-footed in on Darren Byfield, the, the Villa <laughs> striker, and getting sent off, which I, I think that was the first of three dismissals that season for Wise, the third of which was also in a, in a game that Terry played and in Terry's fifth appearance in a, a FA Cup replay uh, against Oxford United in the in the new year. Um, so, so John Terry, this sort of young, impressionable defender who's <laughs> filling in at right back, used to play midfield, uh, hasn't quite settled in at centre half yet. If he's looking for inspiration in the in the senior players around him, he's seen his his club captain. I think he was club captain at the time, getting sent off three times between his debut coming on and his fifth appearance, which uh, probably sums up Dennis Wise quite neatly as well. No wonder they sent him on loan to Nottingham Forest. They probably wanted to get him get him out of that hotbed of uh, indiscipline. Yeah, it's funny actually. You mentioned that Liam because I watched every game he played for Forest, and and I remember from from the very first one that back in those days when players were sent out on loan with a view to to move rather than just to prepare them for for their parent club. Um, you'd normally hear supporters crying to, to get this player signed up on a permanent basis. That was never, ever heard at the City Ground because it was blatantly obvious that he was far too good to ever play for Forest. Um, it's interesting what Don was saying there, though, in terms of the fallout with Petrescu and Dennis Wise, who in some ways would be a great person to learn to, but but maybe not in terms of conduct on the pitch <laughs> around this time. I wonder, though, how important it was to Terry that he had the superstars around him who were there at this time, in particular in his position in Marcel Desailly and Frank Leboeuf, to, to learn his trade from, but also people like Zola and Flo to come up against in training. That that must have helped him massively. Yeah, and I think you've heard Terry talk about that in, in pretty glowing terms over the years. I mean, he's, he's spoken about how influential Zola was, how much he idolised him when he when he was first coming into the that dressing room. But positionally... He's also said how much he took from Desai, and I think the 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 presence, the the confidence he exuded at the centre of a back line, um, and I think Desai knew from the moment he saw Terry as well that this was the guy that was going to eventually replace him as the leader of that Chelsea defence. And and uh, if I remember rightly, I think that Desai's final season it was before Mourinho came in, wasn't it? Um, Terry was already kind of often the captain on the pitch at that point because he'd become established and that was the the end point of that that transition but it it was in some ways the ideal kind of dressing room for Terry to come into because there were there were these incredibly decorated experienced veterans um to learn from who were by and large pretty good characters and obviously Petrescu wasn't the most welcoming but I, I think most of them were uh, they they didn't take umbrage to a, a a youngster coming in and being quite vocal as by all accounts Terry was from the from the moment he arrived, 
and um and yet they weren't they they were old enough as players that they would the pathway was clear that they, it was clear that they would move out of the way and that Terry as he as he aged his appearances would scale up and he would gradually become the pillar of that new defence and of course when we're looking at the other substitutes in that game John Harley had his moments for Chelsea ended up being quite a short career Neil Clement um had a had a good career not necessarily that long at Chelsea but um it was it was quite a good time for the academy because you had this this group of older players but then you had the youth all coming from within and it created quite a nice balance that was very successful in that period it's probably worth acknowledging that and I don't know I've never checked this with Chelsea themselves but Steve Bruce as manager of Huddersfield claimed the following season that um he had a £750,000 bid for Terry accepted by Chelsea. Um, and it was only John Terry saying, no, 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 I see my future at Stamford Bridge, rather than what was then the McAlpine Stadium, um, that that prevented him leaving, uh, which I think he probably just felt out of favour under under Viali. Um, I think that was prior to the loan spell at, at Forest. Um, and I was going to ask you, Matt, but someone suggested that... that that David Platt went through quite a lot of centre halves that season at Forest, most of which presumably were in on loan. And Terry was number eleven, I think, that it had at the City Ground. What what actually set him apart then when he when he played in that team? I think it was what he kind of became renowned for, which was a blend of obvious leadership qualities, but but mixed with control and touch and passing ability for a centre half, which looks incredibly out of place in the bottom reaches of the championship when he was playing alongside a, a, an aging Colin Calderwood and Tony Vaughan, who was kind of the ultimate championship clogger centre-half. And it, he just looked like he was gliding through the other game, whereas everybody else was wading through treacle. And, and I don't know, but that's down to... It, it sort of brings me on to my last my last question for you. It, it, was it a blend of his ability and mentality kind of impinging equally? Or, or was it the fact that, that he had this rare gift for a centre-half of being able to, to pass the ball and control the ball in a way that that was certainly not typical of English defenders around about that time, that, that meant that he was able to go on and play 760 more games after this one against Villa for Chelsea. I mean, bear in mind that he grew up as a midfielder, as a, quite a creative midfielder as well. So he obviously had talent on the ball. Uh, he could spot a pass. And his distribution, I think, went underrated through most of his his Chelsea career even. I mean, people sort of came to see him as a strong-arm leader at the back, but actually he was a lot more than that. Um, and maybe that that hinted at that that upbringing and and the yeah the education that he got even at Senrab going all the way back there before he even joined Chelsea at fourteen I think it was um, but yeah yeah he, he was a class he was one of a generation I mean Rio Ferdinand was probably a bit more elegant as a player but but you know they 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 both had that ability on the ball and he he would have learned that from playing alongside. The Desai, Desai, he would, you know, been such an integral member of the World Cup winning France team in '98, the summer that he joined Chelsea. I mean, that think about that. That it's a hell of a coup for Chelsea to bring in a, a player of that caliber at that at that time from Milan, and he would have he would have soaked up every last bit of quality that he saw from Desai in training, in matches, soaked it up like a sponge. And and I think you could see that in his in his game as a as an elegant centre half who. Yeah, he had to wait for his chance to play there because he was a right back for the first two or three appearances he made for that first team. The other thing I think that really set Terry apart as an elite centre back was that you know he's not as tall as Virgil Van Dijk as an athletic 
figure. He wasn't quite as overwhelming as someone like that. But his timing for headers, absolutely impeccable. Um, I don't. Th- I still can't remember John Terry losing an aerial duel, and he would regularly play against centre forwards, particularly early in his career when maybe before the Premier League slightly moved away from so many bustling number nines. He would regularly play against strikers that were taller than him. And I, I really don't remember him losing headers because his timing was so impeccable. He he, he always got up above who he wanted to get, get up above. And, and it made him, of course, a, a huge asset as from attacking set pieces. It got to the point under Mourinho where teams had to put two men on him uh, to, to try and stop him because he had that combination of aggressing and t- aggression and timing that, that makes someone really unstoppable. That sort of illustrates his the anticipation of I suppose that's the key to, to getting up at the right moment and, and getting that timing right and that was something that a, a young Jermaine Jenis who who was at Forest he would have been Forest youth team still at, back in 98 99 I'm sorry 99 2000 when when John Terry was on loan there but he watched him play and he he thought that he just read the game brilliantly and even at that age um just just seemed to be at one step ahead of everybody else on the pitch and that anticipation as as Liam says when to ju- when to time that jump when to get up above the a bigger center forward and win the ball that that was all born of that that quality i think to just to read the game perfectly the final thing to say about Terry's debut um is that it it sets up Aston Villa as the second club in his career doesn't it he, he, he comes on against Villa to make his first senior appearance. Um, he actually passes Ron Chopper-Harris for appearances as, as captain of Chelsea against Aston Villa. And then, of course, when he finally does leave Chelsea, who does he end his playing career with and begin his coaching career with? Aston Villa. So there's, there's an interesting uh, full circle element there. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the Athletic listeners get two extra free beers. Okay, let's have a look at some of the questions you've been asking us via Twitter then. A pertinent one from Sam to kick us off. He wants to know, is there any talk of Chelsea following some clubs in Europe in taking temporary pay cuts? Also, will they follow the lead of a few other Premier League clubs in paying their casual staff in the coming months? Um, Liam, have you had any word on that? No one I've spoken to at Chelsea has, has said even off the record that that is something that they're going to do. But I think you would be naive if you didn't think those were conversations that were being had at Chelsea and across the Premier League right now because we've already seen Bayern Munich do it. We've seen today Barcelona announce an agreement to to take 
70% pay cuts for the playing staff to ensure the non-playing staff um, continue to be paid. Of course, the, the ramifications of this shutdown are being felt across the, the football league. So this is a problem that football as a whole is having to address. And, and so, to be honest, I would be surprised if we don't see something at Chelsea, even if that's more maybe Premier League-led rather than um, something Chelsea are doing on their own, because... It's it's something that all football clubs are going to have to reckon with, particularly if this this break in play proves to be on the longer end of what some of the estimates are suggesting. Dom, do you think that there's a chance that the club are waiting for players to kind of take the initiative themselves and somebody to to be selfless and say, well, I'll take a pay cut for a while and you, and you can put that money into other areas of the club to, to keep financing that and, and that maybe means that, that they don't risk damaging the relationship with players by saying, look, we're halving your wages for the next three months or whatever it will be? I, I don't think it will be player-led, no. I don't think Chelsea will be waiting for that. I, I suspect what what is happening is that the when a decision is made on this, it will be uniformly across the Premier League. And and so I I imagine that, that the, these are discussions that, that executives at the clubs are having with the Premier League at the moment. And that when a decision is made, that it will, it will then be across the board. I mean look some clubs might might feel they're they're not in that position yet where they have to be considering this. Um others will be desperately in need of it because of the loss of, of match day revenues and and the the potential threat of, of broadcasting monies not being forthcoming as well. So I suspect that there will be a show of strength ultimately and that the Premier League will be united on any decision that's made and that Chelsea as a key member of that Premier League, will will have a, a a big say in what happens, but but we'll end up going with that uh, they will they will do this as twenty clubs. All right. Question posted Liam on Twitter by Abinav, but I wanted to discuss it here too. Abinav asks, "What's your opinion on Ethan Ampadu being part of the squad next season, or Conor Gallagher, uh, for that matter?" Um, the Ampadu one really interests me, Liam, because it's obviously been a, a wasted season for him even even before the break so does that mean therefore that he's going to need to go and do another loan a successful one to to prove that he is worthy of a place in the Chelsea squad or, or will Frank Lampard know enough about him to to put that faith in him anyway I think Lampard has already formed a pretty solid opinion of of Ampadu he made it clear he was a fan in pre-season last year he just couldn't guarantee Ampadu the minutes that he needed as it turns out neither could RB Leipzig um but it's hard to see how that situation will change this summer. You know, Lampard has so many options in central midfield. I think that's maybe the one area where Chelsea won't be actively looking at, at signings um, in the transfer window. And you've got the spectre of Conor Gallagher as well, who's been tearing it up in the in the Championship and maybe gone past Ampadu in terms of development with what he's done this season and, and the, the sheer number of reps that he's had. Um, in the in the professional game so I think both of them have a chance another aspect to all of this is what does the shutdown do to pre-season because that is usually the time when Lampard would be looking at these guys and giving them a window to impress and if pre-season for, for next year is heavily compressed or maybe scrapped altogether then a lot of those players will lose their main window of opportunity to, to impress and and it means that decisions over loans and and maybe even permanent sales you know have to be moved up and made with less information than you would otherwise have but what i do think will happen 
is that Lampard will have some difficult decisions to make ahead of next season because Chelsea have too many good young players. Now, that's not a sentence you could have imagined yourself saying even two or three years ago when you, you know when they're signing players like Danny Drinkwater to take a homegrown quota. Um, so it's it's the kind of problem that Chelsea always wanted to have, but that doesn't change the fact that it, it's going to be a problem for Lampard to try and keep these players happy and sell them all on the fact that they're, they're going to have enough minutes to develop. On a related note, Neil McIntyre asks, what happened with Lewis Baker and Izzy Brown? Do you think either have a chance of forcing their way into Lampard's plans? Uh, Dom, I think the, the short and brutal answer to that one is no. I mean, Baker's had a series of unsuccessful loans and, and Brown is somebody whose career has been massively affected by injuries and, and the development of the players we just spoke about and Billy Gilmore too means that surely there, there's hardly any chance of them being Chelsea first team players in the future. Agreed. I think it's. I think they've been. Yeah, they've been overtaken. Um, they were considered to be hugely um, promising players with a, a lot of potential um, for quite a long time, um, and it hasn't quite worked out for one reason or another. I feel sorry for Izzy Brown. I mean, I think his luck summed up. Was it Brighton he joined and then immediately went down with a serious knee injury and and, and hardly played? I mean, it's it's. It's, he's had the succession of those to deal with. Um, he's at Luton now, isn't he? And, and and they've obviously had a struggle this season. I, I would imagine that, that that generation almost of players who haven't quite made it and almost feel as if they're from a bygone era now, which which says a lot for what Lampard's done, um, they will be allowed to move on. Um, and you, you, I suspect that some of the fees that, that, that would take to, to secure them won't be very significant in the slightest. Last one from Brian. A question on transfers. Any update about Gabriel, the Lille defender, and Jaden Sancho? Liam, we did touch on this a couple of weeks ago. I guess there are talks going on in the background, but really anything serious and concrete is very much on the back burner for the foreseeable until we know what's going to happen with the patterns of seasons finishing and starting again, isn't it? Well, I think Chelsea are still working the phones. They're still having conversations with people. And, you know, they signalled their intention to be proactive ahead of this transfer window with the Hakim Ziyech deal. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that this transfer window now is is such a, a, a potentially shifting time frame because we don't know when the season is going to be finished, if the season is going to be finished, when the new season will start and where the transfer window fits into all of that. So I think um, everything that we're seeing right now could quite easily lead to um, a slowdown in the transfer market generally, and Chelsea will not be immune to that. But that that won't change the fact that they are looking at things. And clearly, any every major European club is looking at Jadon Sancho. And I think what Jadon Sancho wants will be the defining factor in where Jaden Sancho ends up because he will have his pick of clubs. Um, I haven't heard anything solid about Gabriel as of yet, but we, you know, we have seen that Chelsea have been looking at left side, left sided centre backs in that age bracket. They took a long look at Nathan Ake, decided at the time that he 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 wasn't really a clear enough upgrade on what they already had. Uh, I don't know enough about Gabriel. I can't say I've watched him to know if if he's significantly better. He might actually be cheaper than Ake. Um, So that could be an element in all of this. But Chelsea are having conversations, but I I don't know if they're necessarily close to anything right now because we're dealing in such an uncertain transfer climate. 
Tom, I just wonder on Sancho, I mean, obviously a lot of it is going to depend on, on what the player's attitude is, but but whether Dortmund now might be minded to think we'll keep him another year because I'm sure it was in their thoughts that if he has a good Euro 2020, we, we can stick another 20, 30 million onto his price tag and, and obviously that's not an option now. Yeah, I suspect a lot of that, as you say, would, would depend on the player's attitude. Um the, the transfer window is impossible to read at the moment because of, of we, we just don't know how long it's going to be, whether it's going to be extended. I, mean, I suppose there's a potential for it to go almost old school and have a have a transfer window that extends through a season through to March um, and, and you have a deadline at the end of March, potentially, um, in which case you're going to have a few months of, of pretty incessant Jaden Sancho uh, speculation. I can see the logic in what you're saying. Dortmund would have would have banked on him doing well at the Euros because he would have been a key element of England's uh, approach to to Euro 2020. Um, and maybe they they look at it and think well, we can just hold on for another year and, and and hopefully he does just as well in the summer of 2021 when in the in the new competition, the new tournament, uh, and then we'll get a premium for him after that. But you know some of the numbers that have been banded around about Jaden Sancho's potential transfer even now. A pretty eye-watering. Um, I suspect that if somebody offered a hundred million pounds for him, Dortmund would be sorely tempted this year as opposed to next. Um, but we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen with the windows. We don't know what the effect this is going to have on the market. I see a lot of people saying the other day that, you know, are we ever going to see a hundred million pound transfers again? I mean, it's 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 a, a period of such intense uncertainty that it's it's very difficult to, to nail anything down. Good stuff. All right, almost out of time, but before we go, let's meet another cult hero. Right, it's that time of the show where we reveal our latest cult hero, and sticking with the theme of the 1998-99 season, we've chosen Ed De Hoy. The Dutchman made 41 appearances between the posts in that campaign as part of a Chelsea career, which saw him play 179 times in total and leave with medals for winning the Cup Winners' Cup, the Super Cup, the League Cup and the FA Cup. Uh, Liam, he joined in the summer of 97. At that point, the most expensive keeper in English football, having cost £2.25 million from Feyenoord. Uh, perhaps due in part to the price tag, fair to say it took him took him a little while to settle in. Yeah, it did. I mean, he, he arrived just after Chelsea had won the FA Cup and, and they Chelsea didn't necessarily have an established number one. You know, you had Dimitri Kari and Kevin Hitchcock, Frodo Grodas had all played... Um, a significant part at different times and um, and it was a bit of an adjustment for for De Hoy I think coming from from Dutch football to to English football I, I, I my view of him is kind of uh, is kind of distorted a little bit because I remember a lot more of his mistakes for Chelsea than than his best performances I mean for me the indelible image is him chasing haplessly after and Wanku Kanu uh, in the game where Carney scored his hat-trick when Arsenal came back from 2-0 down to beat Chelsea. But he, he was clearly a big part of, of Chelsea's achievements in that 97-2000 to 2000 cycle in particular. Um, you know, played in the Cup Winners' Cup final, played in the League Cup final, the FA Cup final in 2000 as well. Was a, was also a big part in that 99-2000 Champions League run. Um, and I, I think, you know, the one of the, the biggest bits of evidence for for his his good form I think for most of that time is the fact that he was actually playing in front of Edwin van der Sar for the Netherlands um for for long stretches of his Chelsea career and he ended up with 31 Dutch caps and van der Sar ended up with 130 so it's fair to say 
Van der Sar won that battle over the long term. But he played at a high level for Chelsea for, for quite a few years and, and then handed over the reins to uh, to Carlo Cudicini, who was, I think, undisputably an upgrade at that point. But provided Chelsea with some good service in what was the era that set them up for the Abramovich era. Liam mentioned there, Dom, about, about Carlo Cudicini. De Hoy's best season, 99-2000, set club records for appearances and clean sheets in the season, uh, both of which have since been broken. Played a, a pivotal role in helping win, win the Cups we mentioned earlier. But does his reputation suffer a bit because of his successes? Cudicini, obviously excellent in his pomp. Following that, Petr Cech, you can make a case for him being maybe Chelsea's greatest ever goalkeeper. Does that mean that De Hoy doesn't get the recognition that he maybe should? I think you're probably right. I think well, our judgment is is clouded by what happened afterwards. Bear in mind some of the. I mean, we had people like Emerson Tome playing in front of him in that that season in 1999-2000, um, and and to get was it 27 clean sheets in 59 games. That's a, that's a pretty good achievement. But the, it, it was all part of a process. It was all part of of uh, Chelsea progressing um, and, and improving, and the quality stepping up. I mean, no one could have envisaged back then that Roman Abramovich would, would turn up at the club and, and throw billions of pounds at Chelsea. But but there was a, I mean, from the days when Dave Besant was letting shots squirm through his, his grasp uh, at Stamford Bridge, through the that sort of uncertainty when you had so many goalkeepers competing um, and, and no clear number one choice, De Hoy was probably the first of those, uh, you know, this this is the established goalkeeper. And then they improved upon him again with Carlo Cudicini. I mean, he was a better, he was a better goalkeeper, not as big and physically imposing, but but someone who was more reliable and, and clearly a better shot stopper. And then once Petr Cech turned up again, that that standard was raised I'm once sorry. more. That's what happened then? <laughs> Who's sorry? My, my, my watch is apologising to me. But it's almost like. If anything could sum up my life. Such an outrageous Ed Dehoy take. The phone went. I'm sorry. <laughs> Before we go, Liam, tell us what you've got up on The Athletic now and what you're planning to write about for the rest of the week. Sure. So I actually have a big piece on Coventry up, uh, worked on that with Greg Evans, which is about uh, the most unlikely promotion push, I think, in in recent memory. Coventry have been playing at St Andrews all season. They don't play any home games, and yet they've lost one home game all season. And uh, with 10 games of this, of League One left, they were top of the league and, and five points clear and looking very good so it's a it's a big deep dive into into them and the whole stadium situation everything that led to them playing outside of their home city um so in, very much enjoyed working on that one that's up for you to read now and this week on a chelsea um point of view uh, we are doing a very big piece on Chelsea's recruitment strategy and how they go about identifying players and once they've identified them, signing them. So I think there's we've got lots of good information for that. That should be a really interesting read for people and, and I'm looking forward to, to that one going up. Sounds good. Looking forward to reading it. How about you, Dom? Have you decided what you'll be writing about this week? I'm chipping in on the recruitment side with with Liam um, and then I sort of revert back to 1999 and uh, my previous life I've, I've even got the soundtrack going in the, in the background now to, to to get properly into the mood of the 98-99 season I think I've got a couple of pieces going up um, 
involving Crystal Palace um, on that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it should be another interesting week sat in my kitchen writing on the laptop. Were you as disappointed to learn that I was that Share Believe was number one for like all of 1998 and 1999? For, for both of those years, you're telling me that Share was number one with that dreadful <laughs> song? It had it, it was number Just one admit for the it, longest you period. It, you loved it. You loved it. You had it on loop. I do believe in life after love, so I wanted to support her in getting that message out. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Still, the worst use of auto tune, maybe ever. Quite possibly, yeah. Possibly, despite yeah. Simon yeah, Cow's yeah, best sure. efforts. Uh, more on sharing her career next week, no doubt. Uh, remember, subscribers. Remember, subscribers to the Athletic can hear an ad-free version of this podcast by listening through the Athletic app. Uh, do join us again same time next week. But from Dom and from Liam and from me, it's and bye watch. for now. <laughs> and Dom's watch, it's <laughs> bye for now. <laughs>